Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Mark Trowbridge. Mark is an experienced procurement leader with a broad area of focus, which includes sourcing, supply management, contracts management, supplier relationship management, risk management, and inventory management, just to name a few. He's also a published author and speaker whose business travels have taken him throughout North America, Europe, Asia, Malaysia, and the Middle East. So hi, Mark. Thank you so much for being with me. Hello, Kelly. I'm glad to be on. So just based on my brief introduction, you've pretty much discussed all things procurement in all places. But what else would it be helpful for people to know about your professional background? Well, um, I think probably it would be helpful to know that although I do wear the title of pesky consultant um, and have been in the consultant arena with our firm Strategic Procurement Solutions for about 20 plus years, um, I actually have held real jobs before that. Um, My last job out in the uh, private sector, although I had experiences in manufacturing and transportation, um, my last real job was with Bank of America, where I was in charge of about three quarters of the strategic sourcing for the uh, operation and then all contracts management globally. So I have had some real world experience and then in consulting have, have been privileged to work with many leading companies and quite a few governmental organizations um, helping them to improve their um, their procure-to-pay operations. And so have some uh, learned over the years, my colleagues and I have learned over the years, some real practical ways to improve operations. And, and uh, that sometimes adds value to our clients. Absolutely. And I'm sure anybody who's listening in who has worked with consultants will appreciate your, your honesty about the pesky bit. I'll tell you, you're in good company. I too was a pesky consultant. Um, I wasn't as well traveled as you are, um, but all of these jobs are real jobs. There's, there's just as hard of work of being on the consulting side of things as there is being a practitioner. I actually think there's a ton of value in, in having walked both paths, which I'm sure will come into our conversation today. Absolutely. Now, typically what I would do is ask you about our focus topic for today. But you and I had talked in advance, and we are going to flip the Sourcing Hero routine on its head. Because there's a connection, I'm actually going to start by first asking you the question we usually end with, which is actually a choice. So Mark, here are your two options, and then I'll let you pick which one you want, and I'll let you answer. And from there, we'll we'll roll into our, our main topic for today. Your options are what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or what do you think heroism looks like in a business context? Okay. Those are two great questions. It's interesting. They sort of have a good amount of overlap. Um, But that idea of being a hero, I think 
um, goes to the nature and the contribution of the procurement professional. Um, especially as I, as I watch procurement operations and organizations um, over the last uh, decade or so, I've noticed a shift towards, towards individuals doing what is more regarded as compliant rather than more trend-setting. And um, I think one of the as- attributes of a, a procurement hero, um, as well as a strong business leader, is the ability to, to take intelligent risks, um, to get things done, to step outside of the box and the convention of how things have always been done in the past, and, and take a chance on some things, do something innovative. And I think that's one of the true, the true aspects of, uh, of heroism, if we'll use that term. And that is to, uh, to really stretch the boundaries of what can be done and do things in an in a intelligent way where many times, many times we know, you know, if we're an employee in a procurement operation, many times we have a gut, a gut level um, mm-hmm. knowledge that what's currently taking place isn't the best way to do things or this supplier relationship could be really improved upon. And I think a procurement hero, um, a sourcing hero is somebody who, who pushes those boundaries and makes things better and takes the risk of doing that. Hopefully that, that fits your narrative. No, I, I think it does. And, and I think it gives us an interesting way to take on a topic that we have discussed a lot over the last few years, which is risk. We've all been inundated with it. We've all dealt with some of the the downsides of risk and disruption coming to pass. We've had an opportunity as teams, as individuals, as businesses to re-examine maybe our mindset around risk. But you added something. You talked about taking intelligent risks. So if you don't mind, elaborate a little bit about what differentiates an intelligent risk from a plain old run-of-the-mill risk. Sure. Well, there are all, as we know, there are all sorts of risks in procurement and supply chain. And organizations who don't manage that risk can, uh, the procurement organization can literally put an entire company in danger. Um, not only not only uh, legally or financially, but also operationally. Um, and I'm not saying to do things in an imprudent way, um, but it, it really shifts me back um, to to the best boss I ever worked for. Uh, he was an executive vice president at Bank of America. And uh, when I first started reporting to him, um, I had also been promoted and put into the role where I would be in charge of all contracts management uh, for you know a huge organization worldwide and was being asked to improve that process. And he and I met for the first time as a as an employee and a boss to discuss my my performance goals for the upcoming year. And I was pretty sure that I was going to have all sorts of performance objectives on lessening risk, on on you know tightening up these areas, on doing this in contracting. And I was surprised because the first objection objective on the draft that he gave me was that I was supposed to take intelligent risks. And so I thought about that and I asked him to clarify what that meant. And he said, he said, Mark, he said, we're putting you and your team in charge of one of the most important aspects of the procurement side of the business. And he said, if you allow, and he, he reflected back on the past where, where 
some strong-minded attorneys had been overly involved in, in everything happening in procurement in the supply chain. And he, he thought back and he said, he said, if you allow this trend to continue and if you don't put in place more simple ways for businesses to get their, the goods and services they need to operate, um, you can literally shut down Bank of America's effectiveness um, and ability to operate. He said, I want you and your team to put in place better ways, easier ways for organizations to get what they need and to implement that in a way that is seamless and, and broadly manages the risk. And that was sort of a, an eye-opener for me. And it turned out that in all of his direct reports, uh, performance um, objectives, that was the first that was the first thing in there in everybody else's as well but he had customized mine to the contracting spot and the sourcing spot but that was that was an eye opener for me and he actually had he evaluated us we had to demonstrate taking an intelligent risk at least once once per quarter during each annual period we had we had to prove it and we had to show some innovative things so the results of that were pretty dramatic for us. Um, we actually uh, we actually enhanced our relationship with the nine-person um, group of attorneys that directly supported procurement operations, but we reduced our external counsel expenses by by 50%, which was a multi-million dollar number, um, and we shortened the cycle time on contracts, and we developed, um, I think, 48 different template agreements that covered a majority of the of the spend transactions, and we were able to utilize those very efficiently. So we, we scored some big points, but we also made the process better. Well, let's dig into the, the execution side of intelligent risk for a minute. You know, you talked about in-house counsel versus external legal service providers. Um, and so that brings to mind for me the role of suppliers in taking intelligent risk from procurement standpoint. What do we need to know about our relationships to figure out which categories, which relationships, you know, where are we maybe taking an unintelligent risk without realizing it with a supplier? Or where are there supplier relationships where we can really lean in and partner with them on that intelligent risk journey? How would you loop suppliers into that? Well, that, that's a, a great question. And, and certainly, Supplier risk management and sustainability, um, those are major themes um, across all of um, corporate America and actually globally, you know, ac across the, uh, the spectrum. Um, and supplier relationships are very interesting. Um, I, I'll, I'll talk to this in a couple of different ways. First is um, many procurement leaders and certainly operational leaders they don't like to take risks with the suppliers. Um, they they want the most secure supplier relationship, but they also don't want to get blamed if something goes wrong. And uh, if if you think about it, um, if you think about it, the um, you know there's the old expression that no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, and you can substitute a few other names in there, but it's true. It's like if, if you hire IBM, to, which is a great consulting firm and, and technology provider, um, but if you hire them to, um, to do a project and the project goes south, 
nobody's going to blame you for hiring that name brand. Okay? If you took a risk and hired a shadier firm and it went south, then, then your head is on the chopping block. But what's interesting is, and I, and I encourage when I do training for corporate groups, uh, corporate procurement organizations, I encourage them to look that, that they can actually get better value many times by choosing an up-and-coming player in a particular market sector. Chair the, choose the, you know, take time and look at the Uber rather than looking at the yellow cab service. Because um, there's some remarkable firms that are up and coming. And those are the ones that are most motivated to work hard and to be flexible about, about modifying their services to, get, to provide exactly what you need. They're the ones who will, who will give greater concessions in negotiations. You know, you think, I remember years ago doing, um, doing a procure-to-pay efficiency review for, um, for a firm named, um, named Signet Jewelers. Um, Signet Jewelers um, at that time was a little bit smaller than they are now, but now they control um, 58% of the U.S. retail jewelry business. Um, you know, and so Kay, Jared's, Osterman's, Zales—they all belong to this one larger, larger entity. But I remember that at the time, um, they were doing business with a a smaller um, advertising firm, creative agency, and um, they were very happy with that firm's services. And I helped them strengthen the the legal protections that they had with that that organization. But what was interesting is this is the, this is the advertising agency, not a, not a wall street advertising agency, but a smaller one. This is the one who came up with, you know, slogans like every kiss begins with K. Oh gosh. Like yeah. That. And, you know, and yet, you know, so many organizations just go to the biggest, they just go to the biggest provider or the largest supplier. And those, the largest supplier in most spaces isn't willing to, to do things differently for you. So that's an example of one example of an, taking intelligent risk. Um, another one would be, you know, managing your entire supplier um, portfolio. And there are, some, there are some good solutions out there that you have to pay for that can give you key data, you know, everything from financial stability to insurance terms, uh, insurance protections that the supplier carries to their presence on global watch lists and things like that. What's interesting is that the fastest player in that marketplace, in that risk provider marketplace, is a firm that won't, they don't advertise at all. And um, they won't participate in Gartner reviews. They won't participate in Forrester Research reviews. They won't re- participate in Spend Matters reviews. And their services are 100% free, and they're the largest in the space, and they're growing at 300% ro- growth rate this year. Those are the types of things that I love to work on with clients to just to just say, hey, there's a n- more intelligent way to do this. Taking that intelligent risk sometimes can provide you with less risk but it's just because you know something that your competitors don't know. So those are a couple of examples there. Now, one thing that occurs to me as I listen to you talk through these examples, I was actually reflecting back on the task that you and the rest of your team were given by that boss. And I was thinking to myself that the boss didn't say, take a intelligent risk and come back and show me how great it was right? The, the requirement was not necessarily to succeed. The requirement was to take a risk that met 
the standard for being intelligent. And I think that's an important piece of this because whether you're at Signet Jewelers and you're experimenting with a relatively unknown marketing agency, right, or you're in one of these other positions where you're choosing to collaborate or to try something different, you do have to do your homework and make a very good decision, but you also have to be part of a work culture where as long as you have done the best with the information available to you, there is an understanding that you may fail. And that's that's a scary piece. So you have to be willing to take the risk. But then to your other point, you also have to not be overly worried about being the one whose head is on the chopping block. And, and creating that culture, that can't be an easy thing to do. But as you start to reflect on what a difference in terms of competitive advantage that can make for the company, it's really striking, isn't it? It Absolutely. And by the way, I didn't mention the, the the final sentence in that performance objective, and that was that part of the definition of taking an intelligent risk is I had to have a fallback solution. I had to have an alternative plan that if this didn't work, what is going to be the, the alternative action plan? So taking an intelligent risk doesn't mean just going out on a gangplank and, and taking the risk of failure and then having a disaster on your hands. It meant Yes, we can take a risk as well as as it's been intelligently researched, but we also have to we also have to have that fallback plan so that this is not going to be detrimental to the organization if if it does go south. Now let's talk about that research for a minute, because we can gloss over that and just say, yes, do your homework, right? But what does that research look like? What types of internal data? external market analysis, combined insight, what does that actually look like when you know at the end of the day, whether it's plan A that succeeds or the plan B fallback that ends up saving the day, you have to have really thought some things through and done some analysis first. Any tips or advice about what that research actually looks like? Yeah. Um, and it's actually a very timely question. Um, my, my uh, wife and I, believe it or not, were just asked to write a, we just uh, submitted the draft, we're asked to write a feature article for a large supply chain magazine. It's going to be titled uh, The Psych in Negotiations. And my wife has a, a background as a, as a psychiatrist. She has a oh, background. that's an interesting that. combination. We, the two of us put our brains together and, and drafted this article. But um, what what is sort of interesting is that part of that article talked about the need to do advanced research before going into a negotiation. Typically, I mean, my experience is that the supplier organization comes more prepared to a negotiation than their typical procurement counterparts. Now, that's not always true, but as a general theme, that's something that I observe quite often. And I I insist when I'm training groups on you know, in advanced negotiation skills for procurement, I train them on how do you do those those preparation tasks. Now, that's a smaller subset of, you know, overall risk, but good grief, just take time to research things. I mean, going into yeah. a negotiation, you know, simply go to the, the opposing negotiators uh, LinkedIn page and learn a little bit about where did they work? What's the, what are their personality styles? What what presentations have they made? Many times you can find presentations online. You can learn a lot about those people. But if you don't do that research, you're walking into that negotiation cold. I'll guarantee 
that many of the suppliers that we negotiate with, they've done that research. And yet too often the procurement people don't. So, you know, doing that research is important. Having data and, and solid metrics, that's absolutely key at a larger level and, and doing your due diligence up front and researching that, you know, but using non-traditional sources. I mean, many, many publicly traded suppliers, you know, if they're, if they're listed on, on uh, down on, uh, you know, NASDAQ or anywhere else, you know, if you've got a brokerage account, you can actually go in and there's a whole group of people who are paid to go inside the walls of those, those suppliers and research what, what are their marketing plans? What are, what are their operational challenges? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? You know, where are they coming from? And those people are called stock analysts. Good grief. Go in and click on the, on the firm's uh, trading symbol in your brokerage account and, and, and download the information on, yeah. on the, the firm's you know, insider stock analysis. That's great information to have, but do the research up front. So, so when you're taking an intelligent risk or, or doing something innovative, you can find out, you know, a lot, get a lot of credible information about those things. Now let's start to kind of bring this full cycle because you've, you've taken us through sort of what is an intelligent risk. We've talked about the advantages of doing that. I love the fact that you brought in, it's part of it, having a qualified plan B as we think about what individuals and teams can learn from this kind of an approach, certainly if you take an intelligent risk and end up knocking it out of the park, there's going to be celebrations and parades, maybe a cake in the break room back in the pre-working from home days. Um, if you fall back on plan B, you say, okay, we took a risk. Here's how it, it didn't pan out, but thank goodness we had this plan B. But what does the really structured sort of post-mortem process look like? What can you learn from, okay, why did this intelligent risk work? Why did it not work? What was it like switching to our plan B? Can you sort of close the loop on this journey for us and bring us back around to how does one instance of intending to take an intelligent risk, whether it works out or not, increase your ability to do that again in the future with the same as or more confidence and the same as or more success. Um, how does that come back around so that everybody learns and grows from it? Well, two things to start off with. The first is, for the record, I greatly prefer parades to firing squads. <laughs> Don't we all, Mark? Now, where does the cake in the break room fit on that right Okay, we won't go too far down this pathway, <laughs> but cakes are good too. Um, but the more serious side of a res response to your yeah. question is, you know, there's an old expression that those, those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. Yes. And, you know, in that regards, I think that the, the, the key to, to taking risks and operating sometimes outside the box is that there's got to be honesty. Um, and honesty in our approach to, to management and uh, our stakeholders, um, you know, honesty up front saying, hey, we're taking a little bit more of a risk by, by going with this company rather than this more established company. But here are the potential benefits. And making sure that the, the, the stakeholder is in on that decision too. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of procurement groups who are trying to force decisions down the throat of their... Yeah of their stakeholders. 
you know, it needs to be a collaborative decisions. And if there is a risk that's being taken, that shareholder, uh, that stakeholder needs to be, um, you know, aware of what that risk is and they need to buy into that risk. But after the fact, if something does, if the train does start to go off the tracks, there needs to be honesty in bringing that to the attention of people and not covering that up in order to protect our own reputation. You know, the, the folks, you know, in a healthy culture, the folks who bring things to the attention of leadership, good and bad, those are the folks who are going to succeed in their careers. And I, so I think that that concept of honesty um, in all our, our aspects of our career growth that aspect of honesty and the willingness to review decisions and look at those things with a critical eye and then make changes moving forward that improve the situation. Um, rarely is something a total failure. Usually if, if there is, if something begins to go off the tracks, there are things that can be done to make it better. And working collaboratively with the supplier to do that is one of the, the best ways that procurement can, uh, can add value. Um, but where procurement can, can lose a lot of credibility is if we don't have those types of tracking tools. For example, the firm I was mentioning on supplier risk management, if you don't even know, if you don't have visibility to the financial stability of every single one of your suppliers, the train is going to go off the track and it may go off, multiple cars may go off the track. <laughs> so procurement needs to have those, those proper tools. They need to have supplier relationship management techniques in place. I mean, for the A and B suppliers, you know, that may involve having a team scorecard the supplier's performance and be sharing that and using that in the quarterly business reviews with the suppliers. For B and lower end of B and the C suppliers, the tail suppliers, there are a whole lot of metrics that we can get just out of our, our own ERP or procure to pay system that can be shared with the supplier on a push report type of a basis, telling them, hey, here's what your on-time delivery performance is. Here's what, you know, here's the, the line item fill rate percentage. Here's the quality rejection rates. Here's the return rates. Here's the invoice match accuracy. All of those are standard metrics you can get out of an ERP system, any ERP system. Why not be putting together push reports out to the suppliers? You know, the biggest, the biggest players out there, the Amazons of the world, they're sending out reports to all of the merchants who are selling to them. Why aren't we doing that? And even, you know, small and medium sized companies, it's not that hard to do. Mark, this has been a fascinating conversation for people that either don't know you, aren't already connected to you, uh, who enjoyed what they heard today and would like to learn more. What is the best way for them to connect? Um, well, certainly they can contact me through uh, and my colleagues through our website at strategicprocurementsolutions.com. Um, they can also connect with me via my LinkedIn page and uh, or probably, uh, Kelly, through your organization, they can also probably connect. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have continued conversations with you. you it's been a, been a few years since you and I did something creative. And so this was a lot of fun. Absolutely. I agree. Mark, thank you so much for being with me on the Sourcing Hero podcast. All right. Take care, Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. 
Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.